Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm talking to Monica Scotch-Spana, a medical anthropologist and a senior scholar with the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We spoke about the mental health impacts of the coronavirus epidemic and what can be done to address them. Let's listen. Dr. Shaksvana, thank you so much for joining me. I know you've been looking into the mental health dimensions of the COVID pandemic. Can you tell me uh, what you're finding and what you're concerned about? Right now, we're focusing a lot on viral transmission and interrupting it, but we also need to pay attention to the psychosocial dimensions. I think it's helpful for people to think about the mental health impacts of the pandemic uh, in two ways. There's a diffuse distress that we're all feeling, but then there are special groups of us that have unique stresses being placed on us at this time. Let's talk first about the diffuse stress. Um, Tell me about that. Sure. Well, if you look at past pandemics and outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases, you find that people have a high level of anxiety, and there are a number of reasons for that. This is a health threat that is invisible to the naked eye. It, if you're sick, you can manifest benign uh, symptoms um, that mimic other types of diseases. So you don't know if you have COVID-19 or the flu or a cold. And at the same time that you have that uncertainty, you also have Changes in bodily habits like hand washing, interruptions to social uh, relationships because of social distancing, and economic interruptions that place stresses. So there are many reasons why we all have a sense of worry and concern because this is unfamiliar, it's interrupting routines, and we could get sick and our loved ones could get sick. So that generates a, a, a diffuse sense of distress. Uh, that's very well explained. And I think people who are listening will identify. Um, what about for specific populations? Who is most at risk? Well, one group that we all have to be concerned about and help protect are our healthcare workers. Healthcare workers undergo many different types of distress during pandemics and outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases like SARS and MERS, uh, even H1N1 2009 influenza. They're going to be working longer and more shifts. They're going to be away from their families. Their duties to their families, such as childcare and meals, will be interrupted, and they'll be worried about that. They may themselves get sick and they will be worrying about that possibility. They may see their coworkers get sick, perhaps even some severely sick and pass away. So there are a number of stresses on our healthcare workforce. Um, So that's one group, and it's gonna be very important that health systems provide 
time, space, and personnel to to get them through the stress of the pandemic. What about, um, I definitely want to talk about what, what can be done and what that really means, what you just said, but um, other groups that are top of mind for you at particular uh, risk for mental health consequences? Well, let's talk about people who are in self-quarantine, okay? They face a cascade of impacts. They, while they're waiting through the incubation period, are going to be consumed by the uncertainty about whether or not they're going to get sick. At the same time, they are cut off from people and soothing human comfort is not going to be readily available just because of the social distancing aspect. Uh, At the same time, they may be cut off from their obligations to other people. That is, they can't fulfill their the role as a household wage earner, and that will create additional stresses. Now, that's just while they're in self-quarantine. If they should get sick, they then have additional stresses. They have the uncertainty about whether they're going to have a mild case or a severe case. If they get recovered, People may look at them because they have been infected with COVID-19 as somehow a potential threat, even if they have fully recovered and are not passing along the virus anymore. So they could face stigma. So what can we learn about um, these challenges from previous experiences with infectious disease outbreaks, recognizing that this one is unique in a bunch of different ways. Are there um, important lessons from uh, the mental health consequences of other um, pandemics? Well, that experience of stigma is actually a very definitive feature of outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases or novel pathogens. So we saw during SARS that uh, providers, healthcare providers who were taking care of patients with SARS, were shunned in some instances. Children of healthcare workers were shunned out of a fear that that those of us or those of uh, people around them would also get infected, uh, regardless of what the science said. Uh, neighborhoods where there were large numbers of cases of SARS also were stigmatized. And even after the end of the epidemic, the SARS epidemic, those neighborhoods were uh, uh, shunned as well. So that was seen very, very strongly during SARS. So let's talk about what um, can be done to um, respond, mitigate, um, uh, try to lessen the mental health uh, burden um, of this uh, situation. So. Um, Let's start maybe with individuals. What can individuals do? Well, individuals can, even in a context of social distancing, maintain and nurture the relationships with other people. Make phone calls, write emails, have uh, Zoom chats with a whole group of people. So it's going to be important for people to be connected to others. Um, if you're a baker, bake a few items um, and if and then provide it to your neighbors, of course, respecting social distancing and infection control um, safety measures. But you need to connect with other people. So that's what individuals can do. So physical distance doesn't mean psychological distance in a way. 
absolutely. Uh, there's a reporter, uh, Amanda Ripley, who's written about the, the psychology of disasters and, and now epidemics um, and the importance of avoiding isolation is absolutely critical. Got it. What about um, for policies? What kinds of policies um, and uh, should be um, put in place to support uh, mental health uh, generally? Well, we need to move mental health to the foreground of the response. As I said earlier, right now, a lot of it is on viral transmission concerns and healthcare delivery concerns. But we need to make sure mental health is part of the financing structures. So the financial relief packages that are uh, both the current and and future ones that are coming from the federal government really need to take mental health allocations into consideration. Uh, Secondly, public health Uh, authorities really need to invite their behavioral health counterparts to the table and plan the response together. So risk and crisis communication should include experts from a communication perspective, a public health perspective, and a behavioral health perspective. When you have large-scale operations like uh, drive-through testing, there are operational Uh, tips that behavioral health professionals can offer uh, such that the movement of people happens in a calm, uh, calm and orderly fashion. And so people such as behavioral health professionals really need to be providing counsel right now to the to the overall public health response, not just that specific to mental health. Great. I want to circle back to your comment about healthcare workers. What can healthcare organizations be doing to support uh, the mental health of people who are on the front lines of this epidemic? Right. Um, if you look at past outbreaks, particular, uh, in particular SARS, it was very important that healthcare workers be given the time to step back from the response. Um, so breaking up their breaking up their uh, their schedules, also having a literal place that's detached from the delivery of care where they can um, decompress, and also having access, again, to behavioral health experts and for those for whom their spirituality is important, access to um, chaplaincy services as well. And what you're saying is that's not sort of an ancillary part of the response. That's got to be core to the response in order to keep healthcare workers um, in a position to do the best that they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's going to be an extreme sense of urgency and rightly so. But as many other people have spoken about, this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. We want our healthcare workers well on their best game, even a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. So we need to take care of them. Let me ask you um, one other question, which is about uh, people who have uh, mental illness um, before COVID-19. Are there particular concerns and recommendations that you have for them? Yes. People who have um, anxiety conditions or obsessive compulsive disorder prior to the crisis could be facing more acute reactions. And that may be happening at a time when they have less access to the care that they would normally receive. So I think it's important for 
mental health providers to put certain interventions in place, including tele telemedicine, telehealth options, if they're not already doing that. If possible, they should cut out-of-pocket fees, uh, cancellation fees, uh, co-pays, uh, just to allow people the uh, to remove the economic burdens to care. And if they haven't already updated their own business continuity plans for their practices, they need to be doing that right now. In other words, to prepare in case the therapist gets sick, um, making sure that the, the patients have other options. Absolutely. And I think that practitioners that have special expertise in domestic abuse are going to be called upon at a larger rate, given the social distancing and uh, the social distancing requirements. Families are now on top of each other uh, under an overall community level of stress. Uh, and there could be um, there could be some adverse effects in terms of a domestic abuse. That, that's a pretty serious issue. Is there anything that can be done to reduce that risk? I think that families need to find ways to decompress. They need to give each other space. If it means taking a walk in nature, again, with social distancing uh, requirements in mind, um, that needs to happen. They need to w reach out to others when they feel they're under stress. And uh, practitioners who are sensitive to the special, um, the special stresses of uh, marital life and other partnerships um, should uh, make themselves more available to their clients. Uh, well, this is um, extremely important information and on an extremely important issue. I really thank you for taking time uh, to talk to me about it today. Josh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for covering this issue. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.